Well, again, good morning. Again, my name is Marshall, one of the pastors here, and I do want to again say hello to all those joining us from up north in Kohler, uh, I guess a ballroom somewhere at the American Club. Um, but let me uh, pray before we look at this uh, pivotal passage in, uh, in God's Word. Our great God, we come to a very important passage in your Word, and on the one hand, it is easy to comprehend. On the other hand, there's a lot to take in. But more than intellectually, God, I pray that you would meet our hearts in the teaching of your word. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our, um, our home, my family's home, does not have a mudroom. We don't have a mudroom, and a mudroom is something that's kind of nice to have if you live on the North Shore with all the, the wet, the snow, and all of this. We do not have a mudroom, and with an eight-year-old, you kind of, you really want a mudroom and maybe even need one, somewhere for the nasty shoes and all the coats that come with eight-year-olds. Uh, but we do have a, an attached garage that has heat, and so several years ago, my wife Allison had the brilliant idea to use our garage as a mudroom. Great idea, great idea. And one thing you have to have that we had to install, uh, if you're going to have a mudroom, you have to have a coat rack. you got to have a coat rack in a mudroom, right? Because if you don't have a coat rack, what you have is a disaster. Uh, You have mounds of coats and snow pants and mittens and hats and just stuff if you don't have a coat rack. You can't find anything. Nothing makes sense. You need a coat rack to hold everything together to make sense of everything. We are roughly a little halfway over a, in a, a sermon series that we're calling God's Big Picture. And after three sermons on the first 12 chapters of the Bible, the first book in the Bible is called Genesis, and we did three sermons on the first 12 chapters, um, we are jumping to light speed. Uh, you remember Han Solo to Chewie? You know, make the jump to light speed, you know, escape the cruisers. Because uh, in this passage, we're, from last week, we are jumping roughly 1,000 years, and if my math is correct, 255 chapters of the Bible. Uh, and we're doing this... Uh, We're doing this because this sermon series is designed to build a mental coat rack for you to understand the Bible. A mental coat rack, a place that when you're making your way through God's Word or when you pick up God's Word, that there's a place that you can peg ideas, that you can hang things to help it hold together, to help it make sense. If you want to use a different illustration, at some level this sermon series is pulling back from the trees so that we can see the forest. It is using the trail markers, another metaphor, trail markers to find our way or maybe to think of it as a map, uh, a map of the whole world. And of all the sermons in this series, in fact, of all the sermons that I have ever preached, this is kind of my attempt uh, to preach about the entire Bible uh, in 25 minutes, uh, the entire Bible in 25 minutes. There's going to be a fair bit of teaching. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, a Christian, I hope that these sermon series and this sermon uh, can help you to understand, to make sense of your Bible, to not get lost in the trees, to not get lost in the mounds of coats, as it were. 
And if you are a skeptic of Christianity or you are young in your faith, you've just started following Jesus, I do hope that these sermons and this one in particular can help you kind of get above like 60,000 feet view because if you dive into the details, you can get lost pretty quickly. But to take a 60,000 foot view to make a little bit of sense if you're investigating Christianity or new to it. Now for the pastors and theologians in the room, this will be a biblical theological summary. Not so much a systematic theological summary. Uh, Don't worry about that if that doesn't make sense to you. But because it is about the Bible, uh, I have included a visual. I think this is the first time in my time here. We have a visual on page 7 of your bulletin. I ask you to keep that in front of you, especially for the first point. Uh, This is basically my mashup creation from at least three scholars, Vaughn Roberts, Graham Goldsworthy, and primarily, primarily O. Palmer Robertson. But here's the deal. The Bible, the Bible, hold up my Bible, the Bible is God's revelation of himself. It's God telling us about himself. And it is God speaking to us through time. I just told you that we jumped 1,000 years in the biblical chronology, okay? But it's a little bit like if you're married, and if you're married for a season of time, the longer you're married, the more you learn about your spouse because the more they share. Next week is the Super Bowl, and uh, my wife, I knew this, my wife was on a national championship drill team. I knew that. That's pretty cool, right? I found out about a month ago, one month ago, I've been married 10 years, that that drill team was invited to play at the halftime of a Super Bowl. And she chose, not to, she chose not to participate. I was like, that's amazing. That is amazing. You were invited to be at the halftime show of the Super Bowl. Amazing. And as God speaks through time, we learn more about him. And what we learn, that he is more and more amazing. We see more and more of who he is. And today I want to see three things that are emblematic of him. They're almost anecdotes. That's not a good word for it. Uh, but these, because this is a super important passage. This is both about character and plot for literary people, this passage is. And it reveals so very much. So from 2 Samuel 7, and in fact the whole Bible, I want us to see something about God's kingdom, God's grace, and God's faithfulness. We're about to go really fast. Buckle your seatbelts. God's kingdom. Now, scholars go back and forth about what is the key unifying theme of Scripture. Some theologians say covenant. Some say redemption. And you can make a good case especially for redemption. But I think uh, the best answer uh, is the idea of the kingdom of God. And we'll talk about that, the kingdom of God. Uh, One reason I say that is because Jesus was the culmination of the Jewish Scriptures, the Old Testament. He was the culmination. And as he began his ministry... This is how the Gospel of Mark summarizes Jesus' ministry. Jesus began preaching, Mark 1.15, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. The kingdom of God is the central theme, the unifying theme of Scripture. Now, Vaughn Roberts, as we've said every week, defines the kingdom of God as God's people living in God's place under God's rule and blessing. If you are a young child and you're Grace Kids on Wednesday nights, you get a lollipop if you remember that. Uh, I don't have a lollipop for you. But God's people in God's place living under God's rule and blessing. Now, through the Bible, uh, we have some sense of what that means and looks like. But it is an unfolding story, okay? So look with me at the diagram. The very first line in the diagram refers to creation. We looked at this several weeks ago. 
the first line, creation. God made all things good, and he placed our first parents, Adam and Eve, in his place where they lived under his rule and blessing. Several, two weeks ago, we looked at Genesis 3, the second line, the squiggly line, which is the fall into sin. Our first parents rebelled. They decided not to live under God's rule. They ate from the tree which God told them not to eat, and because of that, they were expelled from God's place, no longer living under the fullness of God's blessing. But we talked about this, but even as they were being expelled, even as they were being expelled, there's this shadowy promise of the offspring of the woman. Hold on to that idea. The offspring of the woman that will do good and crush the head of the evil one. Then we get to the third line, which is what we looked at last week, the line that concerns and points to Abram, the promise We said that Genesis 12, which we looked at last week, was God's answer. The call of Abram was God's answer to the sin, the fall, the rebellion, Genesis chapter 3. Because Abram is a descendant of Adam and Eve. And God goes to Abram, he says, go and bless. And as you go and bless, Abram, I know I'm going fast, keep your seatbelts on. As you go and bless, I will give you a place, I'll put you in a place, I will make you a people, and you will be blessed. And again... In Genesis 12, there's this shadowy reference to an offspring because it says in chapter 12, verse 3, in you all nations shall be blessed, referring to in you, to his offspring. So continuing to go through time, Isaac has a son. His name is Isaac. Isaac has two sons. Their names are Jacob and Esau. Jacob has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. And later in Jacob's life, so that is Abram's grandson, This promise comes through Jacob to one of his uh, grandsons. This is Genesis 49-10, that the scepter will not depart from one of your sons. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Again, an echo of an offspring through Abram, some sort of king that will arise. Roughly 500 years later, uh, God's people, the descendants of Abram, are living in Egypt because of a famine. This is the fourth line, Moses. I mean, we're sprinting, but I can't skip Moses. So Walter just read Exodus uh, 20, verses 1, 2, and 3. Let me read again, verse 2. God says this in Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God, my people, he is saying, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of a place to take you to a place, out of the house of slavery. I'm taking you into blessing, and you shall have no other gods before me. You shall live under my rule, my Ten Commandments. Do you hear? People. Place, rule, blessing. People, place, rule, blessing. But as the passage of time, God's kingdom is starting to come into focus. We're seeing more and more of who God has revealed himself to be and more and more of the plan. Now, after the people under Moses' leadership and his follower, Joshua, they come to the place, the promised land. There's basically 500 years of anarchy, okay, cycles of sin and grace, which brings us to today, which is the fifth line here, the line that points to David. And this passage, which we're going to slow down in just a second, this passage looks back 1,000 years, and it takes up the promises that are made to Abram and his offspring, and it places those promises that are 1,000 years old, and it places them squarely on David. But it doesn't just look back. This passage also looks forward 1,000 years and beyond and sets the stage for the messianic hope, the coming Messiah. And this text becomes a major fabric, a major thread in the fabric of Israel's faith and will eventually, as we see, point forward to David's greater son, the one we call Jesus. Now, 
real quickly about David's kingship before we get into God's grace. David is a king, but not a king in the normal sense. David is a king in the sense that he is a witness that points beyond himself that God is the king. He's not a king in the normal sense. He is a king that points beyond himself. He comes as a witness to the king. He gives visibility and representation to what God is doing. Okay, if you need to unfasten your seatbelts, we are done with our sprint. Uh, But we're going to continue to look back and to look forward. Okay, so the first thing we see in this passage is God's kingdom. And how 2 Samuel 7 is really one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. Okay? Now, secondly, God's kingdom. Secondly, God's grace. Now, King David, I'm thinking about doing a sermon series uh, next fall, this coming fall, I should say, on David. haven't decided yet because David is this amazing figure. Actually, the David narrative in the scriptures is the longest biographical sketch in all of ancient literature. It's fascinating, David is. Fascinating human being. Uh, He definitely could have been a Shakespearean character. Because this is after David, at this point in the story, he has already defeated Goliath. Uh, he has outlasted his rival Saul, who keeps trying to kill him. He has been on the he, at one point. He acts like he's a Philistine, so he can live with them. He he has defeated the Philistines. He's united the kingdom north and south, and he has brought the Ark of God back to Jerusalem. Okay, it's, those are all amazing things, each deserving a sermon unto themselves. But now he's living in Jerusalem, and he's done all this, and he is, this is the Pax David. You know, the Pax Romana, the Pax David. He has rest. And so look with me in verse 2. He goes to his pastor, and his pastor's name is David, and he says, basically, this is Marshall's translation of verse 2, I'm going to build a temple. I'm going to build a building for God. And if you're a pastor, that's like the best news ever. You know, I, you know uh, someone's not coming with a complaint. You know, it's my spouse. You know, the church is not doing enough for this thing. No, I want to do something. I want to bless. I want to give something to God. And Nathan, I totally understand this thing. Zero hesitation. Nathan, verse 3, go for it. You want to build a building? Go for it. But verse 4, God has other plans. And that night, God speaks to David, and he basically revokes the building permit. That's what God does in verse 4. Because David's, and I'm quoting Ralph Davis here, David's building plans for God, David's building plans for God would interfere with God's building plans for David. David's building plans for God would interfere with God's building plans for David. Now, as just a little bit of an aside, I have nobody, I've never read anybody that says this. This is just my thinking because I, every day there's an alarm on my phone that goes off for 127. Our capital campaign, which is about to get going, is already going. Uh, our theme verse is Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And as I thought, that, that psalm, Psalm 127, is attributed It's attributed to Solomon, who did have God's blessing to build a building. And I wonder if Solomon wrote that psalm thinking about his father and the fact that his father wanted to build a building, but God had not willed it. I just wonder. I just wonder. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. I really do hope that as many of you as possible are setting your alarm, if you're a member and committed to our church, for 127 every afternoon to pray that with us. But God in his grace, listen to this, God it's in his grace. We need to bear this in mind, Grace Church. God in his grace stops David's building project. Think about that. God in his grace stops. David wants to do this good deed for God. He wants to build God a temple. And God stops him from a good deed. You know, there's something about good deeds that are actually more dangerous than our evil deeds. And your evil deeds, it's pretty clear to see you're in rebellion against God. But when you do something that's good... It's easy to get full of yourself. It's easy to think that you are adding something to God, that God somehow needs you. 
God doesn't need your good deeds. God doesn't need your service. God doesn't need your money, right? And more than our bad deeds, our good deeds really can be a threat to God's grace. Nobody thinks when they're evil, nobody thinks that, you know, that God can't be gracious. When you're evil, you can't, you're like, I need grace. But when you're being obedient, when you're being good, as it were, it's easy for that idea to get in the way and to threaten grace. But then in this remarkable time, he doesn't just revoke the building permit. God comes to David in such personal language. I try, go, go this afternoon and count the number of times that God speaks in the first person singular to David. It's 23 times in verses 4. He says, I, I, I. And what he says to David, David, this is what I have done for you. David, this is what I am doing for you. David, this is what I will do for you. Grace is all over this passage. Let's just look at it real quickly. Let's look at the grace that God gives in the past. In the middle of verse 8, God says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, he says to David, from following the sheep, that you would be prince over my people. He says, David, I have been the past, I was with you. I raised you up from being a shepherd to being king over my people. But the grace isn't just in the past, the grace is also in the future. The end of verse 9, I will make for you a great name, like the great ones of the earth. And here we are, 3,000 years later, we're still talking about this man. We name our children after him, right? God has made David a great name. Verse 10 is a restatement of the promise that we've been seeing every week. I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them so they may have their own place to dwell and be disturbed no more. They will be blessed. You hear it, God's people and God's place under God's rule and blessing. This passage is drenched with God's grace. My favorite Old Testament uh, uh, commentator is a guy named Ralph Davis. And uh, Ralph Davis, he, he, he does all this deep research, and he basically thinks that this passage is God comparing himself to the other gods. And he goes through all these lists of different kings in different parts of the ancient Near East. He talks about the Babylonians. He talks about the Assyrians. He talks about the Egyptians. All, you know, all the people you learned in Western Civ back in college or in social studies in high school. And he talks about all those people, and that the way that it was set up is that the king would do something great for God. He would build a great building for God. And then he would be blessed. He would build a building, then he would be blessed. And Ralph Davis thinks, and I can see the logic here, he thinks that God is saying, no, it is the opposite. I will bless you, and then you will do something great. I will bless you, then you will do something. And God's grace, blessing precedes and supersedes obedience. God's blessing precedes and supersedes obedience, which is to say that God delights in you for you. He has chosen and set his love upon you because of you, not because of something you have done to earn for him. If you are David, you don't have to build the temple to get blessed. You don't even, think about this, David says, he says, no, you don't need to do this for me. In fact, I'm going to make you an eternal, your line's going to be eternal. He blesses him far beyond what a building can stand, right? It's this amazing blessing. If you are David, you don't have to build the building. If you are you, you don't have to do whatever's in the blank to get God's favor. In the economy of God's grace, his delight and blessing are not what, that doesn't earn his favor. You have his favor. And once you know that you have his favor, that unlocks your heart to want to build the building, to want to obey, to want to give. That's what it does, right? Now, I love my job. But there's something that I might love more professionally or vocationally, whatever. 
and that is coaching. I love coaching. Uh, I coach eight-year-olds in basketball right now, and uh, I love it. And my son is on the team. And my hope, and I don't know if this is true, but my hope and my prayer is that my son wants to play well and he wants to play hard, not to earn my approval, not to get my blessing, but he wants to play well and hard because he has my approval, because he has my blessing. Because once you know you have that approval, what are you? You're free. You're not working for something. You are free. And in God's grace, blessing precedes and supersedes obedience. It was that way for David, it is for us. But this story does not just highlight, it doesn't just highlight God's kingdom and God's grace. It also highlights beautifully God's faithfulness. God has made a promise to bring his people into his place under his rule and blessing. And God's promises, friends, are indestructible. God's promises to you are indestructible. I want you to look at the things that cannot destroy God's promises. The first thing that cannot destroy God's promise is death itself. Verse 12, he says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up offspring after you. They shall come from your body. God is saying death cannot break my promise. I will establish my kingdom. But it's not just death. It's also that time cannot exhaust God's promise. Look at verse 13. Your offspring will build a house, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? Forever. It's not death. It's not time. And friends, nor is it sin. Look at verses 15. Sin cannot destroy God's promises. I will come to be to him a father. This is speaking of Solomon. He shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, when he sins, when he disappoints, when he disobeys, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son's of men. Sin, death, and time cannot destroy God's promises. Now, the first recipient of this promise is David's son. David has a son named Solomon. And we're not going to talk about Solomon. Solomon was simultaneously like the wisest person in the world and the stupidest person at the same time. He is wise in his dealings and his machinations and his writing, but his personal life was a disaster. He married a bunch of uh, pagan wives who drew his heart away from God. And God just ultimately divided his family. And God is saying here, God is saying here, even when there's rebellion, even when there's sin, even when your children sin, that will not thwart my plan. That will not thwart my plan. Because verse 15 is some of the best news in all of Scripture. Because what verse 15, which I'm about to read, says is that my promise is indestructible. What verse 15 is, let me tell you what it is before I read it. God is building a bottom underneath what seems to be a bottomless pit. Because if all of God's promises depend on our ability, our effort, our faithfulness, we would be doomed. But verse 15 says this, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. My steadfast love, that is God's hesed love. That is God's loving kindness. And he says it will not depart. God is building a bottom underneath the bottomless pit of our failures, of our infidelity, of our disobedience. Because if it did depend on us, it would, be dip- it would be doomed. But verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God is saying my promise will not be broken. I will keep my promise. 
I will keep my promise. I don't know where you are in your life, but you need to hear. God will not break his promise to you. He will not. Now, this is astonishing language in so many different ways, but it's not just referring to Solomon. Solomon is his direct descendant, but there is one who is coming in the line of Solomon, in the line of David, who is even greater. Because it's actually like when we see Solomon, from David's perspective, seeing Solomon, it's kind of like if you're driving across like Nebraska and then eastern, uh, eastern Colorado, and you for the first time see the Rocky Mountains. And when you see the Rocky Mountains, what is it, from a distance, what do you see? It's just like it looks like one mountain, right? It looks like one mass. And from David's perspective, that's what it looks like. But then as you get closer, as you drive closer to the mountains, what do you start to see? You start to see the ups and the downs. All he could see at the distance was Solomon. But as he gets closer, he starts to see there is undulation. There are different levels of mountains because behind all of this massive form stands not the person of Solomon and his offspring. Who stands behind it all is Jesus himself. This promise is pointing forward to Jesus. I'm not going to go through. I'm going to start going fast again here because a couple... uh, Many years later, really, uh, in Jeremiah 31 and Jeremiah 33, God basically says that these promises to David are actually for a Messiah figure. And then we get to the very first verse, the very first verse in the Christian New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and this is what it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, (laughs) the son of Abraham. And I could develop this all through the New Testament, but then you get to the very last chapter of the Bible, the last chapter of the Christian New Testament, Revelation 22, Jesus is speaking. He says, I am the root and offspring of David, of David. You see, friends, God's promises are indestructible because they are in Jesus. And so what we have here is a further development of the promise, God's people and God's place under God's rule and God's blessing. And I think the thing I want to leave you with, because you see these pictures of God's kingdom, God's grace, and God's faithfulness. But what I want to leave you with is those 23 iterations of God speaking in the first person single, I, 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 I will give you a kingdom. I will be gracious to you. I will not break my promise. Friends, that is a hyperspeed through all the Bible. But it is the good news that is given to us in God's word. Let me pray for us. Our God, we, have, uh, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word, which shows us so much of yourself, shows us your heart for us. And God, as we have seen your promises to David and how they are unbreakable, God, we thank you that those same promises are ours, that we are, as it were, related to David and to Abram by faith. We thank you, which is to say, for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.